Father, I want to thank you for the power of your word. I ask God that you would challenge us tonight. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. How shall a young man keep his way pure? Except by hiding these words in his heart that he might not sin against you. Father, on these words we meditate day and night. And we will be like that tree planted by streams of water. Father, I pray that your word would be life to us tonight. That where we may be discouraged, your truth would break in and would would clear the haze and the confusion and the discouragement, even disillusionment, and that we would be able to grasp a hold of the grace of God in its beauty tonight and that we would be able to see Jesus for who he is and your sovereign purposes for our life. Let this encourage us, God. And I just thank you so much for the power of the truth of your word to set us free. If anyone is in bondage tonight, set them free, God, with your truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you have ever used jumper cables to start a car? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you have ever gotten the terminals crisscrossed? Yes. Okay. Yes, that happens. That happens. That has happened to me. We need to understand that when you're getting that battery charged up, positive to positive, negative to negative, and so on, that there is a power flow from the positive into the negative, but both of them are absolutely required. Uh, The power does not come from the negative. It comes from the positive. But without the negative, there is no power. Your, Your car remains dead. Without the positive and the negative the car remains dead. However, when they're properly connected, it will suddenly, as long as the battery is the issue, it roars to life, right? Okay, let me leave that illustration for just a moment here. How many of you have ever been vacuuming and while you were vacuuming, the cord accidentally came unplugged from the outlet? Cool, I'm not the only one. And you look at the vacuum cleaner and you're thinking, oh no, it died on me. Now, many of you will just simply assume the cord got unplugged, but one of my vacuum cleaners was on its last leg, and I assumed that it was the vacuum cleaner. Boy, I won't get into that story. It took me half an hour to realize that it was unplugged. But many of us will say, okay, my vacuum cleaner died, and all I have to do to get the vacuum cleaner going is to plug in the cord. And by plugging in the cord, my vacuum cleaner roars to life as long as it's on the, in the on position, okay? Well, technically, that's not true, but we all understand what we're saying. Technically, the electricity that powers the house suddenly connected, as you plugged it in, with the, with the cord, the p- electricity flows through the cord and empowers the vacuum cleaner. And now your vacuum cleaner roars to life, Right? So, what I'm talking about is grace and faith. Now, last week we were looking at election with the focus on grace. This week we're going to be looking at repentance and faith with obviously the emphasis on, well, the faith side, man's responsibility. How many?
many of you, now going back to the, uh, the power cables, jump-starting your car, have accidentally touched the positive and negative? Uh, yes, okay. What happened? Spark scared you to death. And if you're not careful, they start, if you don't pull them apart quickly, they start melting, right? There's so much electricity flowing through there, okay? And the, the, the cables can actually, the clamps can actually start melting. Now, when we try, and, and you remember the illustration that I used here, and this, by the way, is in way of review, but I will be segueing what we have to say here tonight concerning repentance and faith. We realize that there is what I'm going to call a disparity. We would say it's illogical. It doesn't make sense. And there is this tendency to want to bring election and faith together so that it makes sense. But I'm going to tell you this, that whenever you try to bring them together and honor Scripture on both of these, you're going to have sparks fly. And it is because we have been chosen in Him. And let, let me put it this way. We looked at several things that we have been chosen unto. Um, well, let, let, I'm sorry. Let me back up. Faith. Because of faith, we have salvation. I'm going to be abbreviating here. Sorry. We obey. We've been plugged into the power that is in Christ. We've been made alive. We're able to obey the word of God. Um, we are blame. He, he is. We become uh, blameless and pure. We call this sanctification. Um, let me look at some others here. Eternal life. All of these flow from believing in Jesus Christ. We can even say, by faith, we have received all of these things. We can say that, and we understand what we mean by that. But, but technically, was he asleep? Oh. We're in here, Rusty. We love you. Um. We, can, we understand that, even as much as we understand that by plugging in the cord, the vacuum cleaner comes to life. But technically, it is by grace, not by faith, by grace, through, I'm going to abbreviate through, sorry, through what? Faith. Thank you. By grace, through faith. Let, let, let me uh, keep to our illustration. By the electricity in the house through the electrical cord, the vacuum cleaner comes to life. Now, what we looked at last week was something very interesting, that this idea of election, or God choosing us, it's, it talks about electing us unto salvation. That's in 2 Thessalon Thessalonians 2, um, uh, 13 and 14. Um, faith leading to or election unto obedience we've been chosen to be blameless and pure um, 
those who were appointed unto eternal life believed. And it would be logical, so it would seem, to therefore say, if he chose us unto all of these things, that therefore he chose us unto faith, and therefore, by that faith, we apprehend all of these things. But that is not what Scripture says. It doesn't say that we have been chosen or elect unto faith. There's, there is not a, 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 a scripture passage that tells us this. And so all I'm going to say is that because it does not say this, and it leaves us with this phrase, he chose us in him, that it does not, it does not mean he chose us to be in him. And, okay, instead, you, you can actually go through Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, and we have, he has blessed us in him, he raised us up in him, he seated us in him, and you do not want to, across the board, insert to be in him. There is no cause and effect here. We have not been elect unto faith, at least that's not what scripture says. And so what I'm going to encourage us to do is, as we are holding these two positive neg negative cables, let's be careful to keep them separate. Let's not try to combine them, because when we do this, to make it logical sense for it, sparks will fly. And then I'm using that illustration not to prove my point here, but to illustrate my point. And we need to allow the mystery of election and faith to remain and not try and tidy up God's truth, okay? And I gave you three reasons uh, that would challenge us to step back and allow that mystery to remain that I'm not going to get into right now. But tonight, even though last week we're talking about, because election boils down to grace, we want to move into faith. But before we do that, I want us to right now go to Romans chapter 8. And I do want to spend just a few minutes, and that's all that I can do is just a few minutes to talk about this, because I, I'm not sure that w with all of our theologizing last week on election, that we really hit the core and the heart of the purpose of election. We talked about it, but I want us to ruminate for just a few minutes on this purpose. I believe Romans chapter 8 probably is Paul's greatest... Uh, even more so than Ephesians 1, his greatest treatise on the purpose of election. And we find it right there in, in verses 29 and 30 is where he talks about it. But the verses surrounding it actually give us the context that we need to see that I would like us to focus on. So we, we saw that in verse 29, for those that the God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son that... He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. The context here is that God works all things together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And so we have this idea or, or this, this understanding or concept of us loving God and him calling us. And he uses this word called in the very next two verses. 
Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And so Paul is wanting to be, for us to begin to understand that this sovereign God who allows these bad things in our life, bad in quotes, things in our life, he does so because he is sovereignly in control, not just of things, okay? God is sovereign over all things and all people, but God has purposely chosen us and elected us unto this inheritance that we have in Christ. This inheritance, this is what we've been elected to. Salvation, obedience, blameless, eternal life, holiness. This is what we've been elect unto. This is our inheritance that he has blessed us with and given us in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 1.3 says. And so to, to really understand this inheritance, he makes this claim that those who love him, he will allow all things to work together for their good because we love him and he has called us. We love him and he has called us. But this calling has, has deeper roots in predestination and God's foreknowledge, specifically him foreknowing us. By the way, um, in Jeremiah chapter 1, we also see this idea of knowing people beforehand. And it says, uh, in your mother's womb, I knew you. I believe I'm quoting that correctly in Jeremiah chapter 1. And he's talking about Jeremiah as a prophet. Um, so before you were born, I knew you. So let me move on. As we move on to verse 31, we begin to see the context a little bit more. And it says, what then shall we say in response to this? Okay? That this idea of us loving him on the one hand and him calling us, and that calling is rooted in God's predestination and foreknowledge. What do we say in response to this? He says this, if God is for us. And I hope that in this these verses, you can see that God is for us, that he is sovereignly in control and is, he is foreknown, he is predestined, called, justified, glorified. If God is for us, then who can be against us? And this is what he really wants to beat his drum on right now. Who can be against us? Can things be against us? We're going to find out. No, they cannot. Can Satan be against us? Try as hard as he can. His plans will only play into the plans of God. Okay? Let me continue on. He says, He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will He not also, along with Him, giving us Jesus, along with Him, graciously give us all things. This is our, do you see this inheritance? He has given us all things. So in Christ, we have all things. He chose us in Him. We have all things. We have this incredible inheritance because we love Him and He has, he has called us. And it says, who will bring any charge against those whom He has chosen? See, this is God. It is, not a, it is not our doing. It is not our works. It has nothing to do with those things that we have done and these things that we are doing in the kingdom of God that people might step back and say, wow, that is so amazing. It has nothing to do with that. But rather, 
It is simply because that God has chosen us. It is God who justifies. This is God who has done this for us. It is Him who has brought about this inheritance. It is by grace, that's the power, that's the positive cable, if you will, through faith, the negative cable, not that faith is negative, but you understand, With you need both, but the, pla- the power, the transformation, the inheritance comes by God's grace. God does this through faith. Um, if, if you can allow my right hand to represent uh, God's grace, and I just like illustr- I like pictures in my mind, okay? It is not a one-two punch or however you want to, to view that. It is God's grace, and my left hand would represent faith. It is God's grace through faith raising us up. It is by God's grace through faith that gives us eternal life, that transforms us from death to life that empowers us to even obey him and be holy. It is God's grace, but it is through faith. Who is he that condemns? Who is he that condemns? See, this isn't based on what I have done, and this is based completely on what Christ has done for us. He did not spare his own son. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Again, we're back now to the focus of God's or Christ's love. So it's not just us loving God, but in his foreknowledge encapsulates God's love. And so this is the foundation, God's love. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, you, you, for, your, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And, and why is this? Why is it that we are more than conquerors? It is not because of our own strength. It is because of what Christ has done, what he secured for us on the cross. That was the power. That is what flows. I don't know, maybe this illustration will break down. He's the one who threw the breaker and allowed the power to flow through the house anyway. Okay? And when this happens, he, his declaration is very simply this. You are more than conquerors. Why? Because of what Christ has done for us. It's rooted in his love and he therefore will not allow any bad thing. And, and when I say bad, I'm not, I'm not trying to minimize the, you know, the loss of a loved one. That is a bad thing. That is, that is not God's original intention from the garden. That is a result of sin. And we can say that's a bad thing. But even in those bad things, he works them together for our good, not because of how wonderful we are or were we really good today, but it is based solely in the fact that he reached out and called us. He initiated. He fell in love with us and he chose us. And he chose he chose us in him, and he has given us this incredible inheritance that we have been chosen unto or elect unto, okay? And so this is the context. So let let me just say, at least in Paul's mind, and I would say therefore in God's mind, election is a big thing. It's 
we can kind of gloss over it and just assume all of this, but Paul says it goes back to his election, which is rooted in his foreknowledge. He foreknew us. He knew us beforehand, and consequently from that flows this truth that will never change. There is nothing that will stand in the way of God's love for us. Nothing. It is eternal. It is driven by God's grace. And so this this truth that all things work together for our good is because God has chosen us unto this inheritance that nothing and no man can snatch from us, can steal away from us, okay? It is ours, all right? Okay, so I need to move on. I'm done my preaching here. I want us to look at, um, I'm going to preach now again when we're talking about repentance and faith. We need to understand something that in our day, there is a, a controversy be, it, with this idea of repentance. There is a defining, let me just put it up on the board here. Repentance is this Greek word, metanoia, which means literally change metanoia mind. Change of mind. There is a fear that that some people will misunderstand repentance and that somehow we have to we have to stop sinning in order to be saved. And I want to I want to bring a correction to that misunderstanding. What this has done and it's especially prevalent in the dispensational theology movement in our day to to redefine repentance. To say things like you can accept Jesus as savior and not as lord. And it goes back to this idea of change of mind. And they latch onto this idea that if repentance has anything to do with sin, like turning away from sin, then that is something that follows salvation and is not a requirement for salvation. Now, do you follow what I'm saying here? It, it, it causes us to step back and say, then what does Scripture mean by repentance? In, in Mark chapter 1, what verse is this? Uh, 14 and 15, he says, Repent and believe the gospel of the kingdom. Repent and believe. In Acts 2.38, it says, Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. There is no believe here. Repent stands by itself. Does that mean that we don't have to believe? Are we, are we trying to put together this formula that says you have to change your mind about something, and we need to come back to that. What is it we need to change our mind about? 
We need to change our mind about something and believe in Jesus, and then we will be saved. And, and we're wanting to put this formula together, and yet when we read through the Gospels, this formula, at least in our mind, can tend to break down because repentance stands by itself there in, in Acts 2.38. Repent. Um, then over there in, in Acts 16, the Philippian jailer says, what must I do to be saved? And he says, believe. And there's no mention of repentance. Then in Acts 3, we are told, repent and turn to God. And times of refreshing will come to you. And we can start becoming confused because we thought we had this formula down. Change your mind about whatever. And we're going to need to fill in the blank there about whatever. And believe. And then we have salvation. And so this argument goes that it is always believing, but this idea of repentance has nothing to do with sin. Has nothing to do with sin. Has nothing to do with submitting to Jesus as Lord because from their perspective, that means that you have to do works to submit to to. To Jesus, You actually have to turn away from your sin. And that sounds so works-oriented. And so what, what has happened in this camp, and it's really a, a lot of it has come out of Dallas Theological Seminary, we have this, these writings from honestly godly men, but the gospel is beginning to, I'm going to word it this way very purposely, the gospel is beginning to get distorted. And, and let me tell you the degree to which it has gotten distorted. When I was in college, and I'm going back years and years ago because this example is just so profound to me. This guy had been going to church and he and I were discussing things. Actually, the conversation started because he talked about how wasted he had gotten at a party the night before. <laughs> and so I wanted, to, I wanted to evangelize. I wanted to share the gospel with him. So I started sharing my testimony. I said, have you ever trusted in Jesus as your Savior and Lord? And he said, well, I've trusted in Jesus as my Savior, but not as my Lord. And I said, really? Well, how do you mean? Well, see, I believe in Jesus, but he, right now I can't really say he's my Lord. And, and let me just tell you, I think I was really gracious with him, but I, I, I really unloaded on him. And we have a generation that is growing up with this teaching that says we can follow and accept and believe in Jesus as Savior, but lordship has to do with repentance from dead, repentance uh, from sin, turning away from it, stop sinning, holiness, obedience, and after salvation at some point, he becomes more and more our Lord. I'm going to challenge that. Because what that does is that produces within us a misunderstanding of what this word metanoia is all about. To do that, I want to read to you from the ESV. And yes, we pass this Bible out. I think it's an excellent translation of the Bible. However, they share the gospel, and I take issue with this portion that they share the gospel, only because, for me, I know where they're going with this, okay? Many people would stop and say, well, what's, what's the big deal? But I'm going to tell you what the big deal is in just a moment. 
Let, let me read the paragraph to you. That last verse, John eleven twenty six, actually ends with Jesus asking, do you believe this? It is a question that every person must answer. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God? Is Jesus the object of your faith? And I would like to know, what does he mean by the object of my faith? And I think the following sentences explain that. And if it does, it's very unfortunate. Is Jesus the object of your faith? Not faith in ritual, not faith in sacrifices, not faith in morals, not faith in yourself. Do you believe, and I'm assuming this is what he now explains by Jesus is the object of our faith. Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross to free you from the guilt and judgment of sin? Do you believe that he rose from the grave, breaking the power of death and making a way for you to have eternal life in heaven? If so, you may express your faith in him by praying this prayer. And it, it gives a, uh, a sinner's prayer here to lead them into conversion. The only problem is that there is something, in my opinion, that is seriously left out. It is this idea that metanoia simply means to change your mind about who Jesus is. It does not mean to change your mind about your old lifestyle, about the way you used to live, about now how you are called to live. You don't need to change your mind about all of that because you are powerless to do anything about it. So don't worry about it. You just need to acknowledge a creed. And that's good. Now, in all fairness, if I'm mistaken in how I understood this, I would like you to read it and, and show me because I hope I'm wrong. But their whole emphasis was believing that Jesus did this and Jesus did. And, you know, what Jesus did, that is powerful. That is awesome. But we have today in this generation what we call nominal Christians, people who have accepted Jesus as Savior. They've changed their thinking about Jesus, not that he's simply a man, but now that he's the Son of God. And they've got their theology right, perhaps, about who Jesus is. But my question is, is that all it means to gain salvation? I just need to change my mind about who Jesus is. Can I assure you that Satan believes every single thing that I just read from that, bu that book? He believes it. As a matter of fact, his theology may be better than some of ours. So he believes that there's a God. The demons, and maybe some of them don't have quite as good theology as, as many of us. But I'm going to tell you, that Satan has studied the Bible. Satan could quote scripture to Jesus. And I'm going to tell you this. I think Satan has trained his demons to be able to know the word and twist it enough to lead people down the halfway truths that he espouses. And it's these halfway truths. You just need to change your mind about who Jesus is and you'll be saved. But the problem is, is that undermines lordship salvation. And what is lordship salvation? That really is what we're going to get at here tonight. So what I'm going to do here is, uh, you know, before I draw my diagram, um, I'm sorry, could you repeat the last thing that you said about lordship? Salvation. Uh, yes, lordship salvation. Well, I have a quick question. Who, yes. Who's, yes, like, who's the auditor of that? Yeah, let, let, let me not get into that. You can ask me later. Uh, basically, because I don't know, and I will... And again, it's, it's honestly a common mistake. 
made in Christianity. You just need to believe this and this and this and this and pray this prayer and you will be saved. And my question is, where is the root understanding of, of repentance? Because even, even in what they shared, it's still missing the heart and soul of what faith is. Now, can I assure you of this? We must know who Jesus is and what he has accomplished for us. But when it says that he is the object of our faith, what does that mean? We're going to need to look at that. I'm jumping ahead, but when we get to faith. But what is repentance then? Uh, Turn then to Acts 26, because we cannot, by the way, define repentance in in, in, in some way meaning stop sinning. Okay, now let me say that again. We cannot define repentance to mean stop sinning. That is an action. We are locked into sin. We are, we are slaves to sin. We are dead in sin as unbelievers, separated from Christ. And consequently, we can't stop sinning. Perhaps the worst thing that you can tell a Christian to do is act like a, a non-Christian is to tell him to act like a Christian. Okay? Now, I, I am all in favor of passing righteous laws in an ungodly nation. Don't get me wrong. But for me to somehow suggest that they can do these things and as a result gain favor of God, uh uh-uh. It doesn't happen. To bless others, hey, how about if you stop cursing? How about if you stop murdering and stealing? I'm all for that. All for that. That's a blessing to others. But in Acts 26, 20, Paul says this on the heels of sharing his testimony. He says, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea and to the Gentiles also, I preach that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. What does it mean to prove their repentance by their deeds? What does that mean? That's, that's a question to you and for you to answer. Yes, Rachel. A transformed life. Okay. Transformed life. Somebody else? May? Mm-hmm. Doing the stuff Okay. The bad stuff especially, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. Stop doing the bad stuff that you were doing. Okay. Transformed life. This is the picture that it's giving. So it, it says that um, prove their repentance by their deeds. Think about that. Just think about that one. Repentance. Repentance, change of mind. To prove their change of mind by their deeds. This is not something that we need to do for salvation. This is what flows as a result of being saved. Let's understand that. But he he does say, I preach that they should repent and turn to God saved. And after they're saved, to prove their repentance by their deeds. Here's here's my suggestion. If repentance is merely changing your understanding about how who Jesus is, what does demonstrating your repentance by not sinning have to do with that? Do you see what I'm do you see what I'm asking? If we understand repentance to only mean changing our mind 
about who Jesus is, what does proving your repentance by your actions, how, how does... He's had a rough day today, by the way. To answer your question, because repentance has to do with the change of life. And, of course... Okay, change of life would imply works. Right, but... And which would be proving your repentance by your lifestyle. By your deeds. So that should... By your deeds. Which are works. Which, which are works. So we, we do want to be careful in saying... Repentance before salvation is a change of mind, but what I'm saying, it's got to be more than about Christ. It has to be about something else, and we know it has to be about something else because he tells us, prove your repentance, prove your change of mind by your actions, by what you're going to do, by your lifestyle, by your deeds. So how, how does that understanding of repentance then fit with just changing your mind about who Jesus is. Do you, do you see what I'm asking then? Leanne, do you want to give it a shot? I think there's a, a, a phrase uh, don't, or don't watch what people or say, watch what they do. You have to follow with action. In other words, uh, you can't just say you're repenting and if you don't follow it up with actions to kind of prove it, it's going to ring hollow. Okay, so then we need to go deeper and say, what is it that, according to Paul, what is he assuming that we are changing our mind about? Is it simply who Jesus is? Scott? No, uh, well, I'm just thinking about, uh, I don't know if this is on track or not, but... Give it a shot. <laughs> well, Christ didn't just come mm-hmm. to save us. He also came to fulfill the law and prophecies, right? Okay. So, if he's just a salvific figure, then the, the good word, by the way. Prophet, okay. Thank you. The law and the prophecies are not part of his um, role in what he did. If, it, if it's purely salvation, so he he basically came to to save us, and I'm just thinking maybe this is where coming from is that the law and the prophets was also stamped with approval was justified through Jesus so um, Paul being who he was the former you know by the book of law Jewish person person um, that would be important to him that the law okay Christ fulfilled the law alright Let's go even further than that because you're implying something with him fulfilling the law that we need to grasp a hold of that Paul is understanding this concept of changing our mind to mean more than just changing our mind about who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. But he's talking about changing our mind about something else. Mary? Well, if God is love, when you become saved, you should feel that or understand it to some level because he took your place. So I think that would be like the key because you love the Lord and his word says these things. It's like a natural effect that should happen that you turn from those sins. Does that make sense? Okay. 
All right, L- let me, I think we're struggling to really just hit the nail right on the head, so I'm going to do that for you, okay? Is this okay? synonymous to James Lemon? Sorry? Is this synonymous to the James Lemon Faith and Works? works uh, no, no. Okay, let, let, me, let me demonstrate this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to refer to repentance as a U-turn. But it is, a U, it is a U-turn in our mind, in our will, in our decision-making capacity, in how we view things. Carrying that out is now the repentance that follows salvation. That is the fruit or the proving your repentance according to your deeds. When, now that he's talking about deeds here, by the way I live, we should know that, he is, that metanoia, repentance, means more than just changing our mind about who Jesus is because it has to do with how we are living. He is saying that that lifestyle, those deeds that we were doing in the past, now change and we're proving our repentance We're demonstrating our change of mind about something and we're living a righteous life in Christ. So that something that we're changing our mind about, number one, is who I am. I need to change my mind about who, who I am. That is, I am a sinner. I am lost and sin. I am not basically good. I am basically wicked. As a matter of fact, let's be really honest, I am wicked to the core and I am an, I am an enemy of God. So the first thing, and this is going to, this, those who, who do not believe in lordship salvation will disagree with what I'm saying right now. But I'm telling you, this is what the scriptures teach and it is crucial to bring about genuine faith. And it's not, it's not just faith and believing that saves us. It is, if, if you can uh, allow me to draw a line here, it is genuine faith. So what, what, what is non-genuine faith? James 2, and this is what the uh, other life group has been talking about recently. James 2 talks about believing, but then believing, and it's demonstrated by how we live. All right? It's not faith plus works. He's just simply saying genuine faith will prove itself by how one lives. Okay, So where are we here? This right here says, I am a sinner. We change our mind about who we are. I am a sinner. I am lost in sin. That has nothing to do with Jesus at this point. It might have to do with the purpose of Jesus dying on the cross. Okay. But this is not changing our mind about who Jesus is and what he did on the cross. This is changing our mind about who I am. Number two, um, we need to turn from sin. Now, I am going to be very careful in how I articulate what I mean by turning from sin. I am not saying that this type of repentance that precedes salvation is works-oriented. It does not mean stop sinning. But it does mean I need to change my mind, not just about who I am, but I need to change my mind about this lifestyle that I have been living. What the Bible calls the old man, the old me, which, if I'm lost, is the present me. 
I hope I didn't confuse you with that. But this is who I am. I'm lost. I live a sinful lifestyle and I need to change my mind about this lifestyle and I need to say, I need to declare, I need to truly, uh, in my mind, make a choice. I am going to turn away from my sin. So, turn from sin. I am not talking about the actual deeds of not sinning. I am talking about a choice here. I'm talking about a decision. It is a change of mind concerning how I view my sin. Because that gentleman who said, I believe in Jesus as my Savior, but not as my Lord, he has not changed his mind about his sin. He still thinks that his sin is okay, and maybe one day Jesus will help him, but he's okay living this lifestyle that he lives just as long as he goes to church the next day. And he doesn't understand that God's view of sin is truly that he hates sin. It is darkness. And he has called us out of that. Okay? So I need to make a decision right now. Am I going to choose to turn my back on my sin? Or am I going to embrace my sin, take it along with me, and say, Jesus, I believe in you. Can you let me in? And Jesus is going to say, you need to be willing to let go of that baggage and then I'll let you in. All right? Again, I am not saying that this repentance is stop sinning. It is a heart change that says, by God's grace, I am am not going to live this way anymore. If you don't make that decision, if that is not a part of the decision you make in coming to Christ, and you think that it's okay to bring this sinful lifestyle along with you and just say, God, you know, excuse this. You know, you'll get rid of it eventually, but uh, I'm just going to take it along with me. That lacks this understanding of being buried with Christ in baptism, of being not just forgiven, but set free from this sin. Okay? So our mind has to change about our sin. Then it has to change about Jesus. And that is, now that we recognize that we're a sinner, and in our heart we turn from that sin, there's only one direction that we can go now. If we've turned our backs on our sin, we now must choose to follow Jesus, repent and turn to God, and refreshing will come. Acts 3. That's what Peter preached. All right. Any questions on this? So we've had to change our mind about who we are, about our sin, and about who Jesus is. He is the lover of my soul, and I must run to him, okay? And give him my heart. We're going to talk about that more in in this idea of faith. Change our mind about who we are. Change our mind about who we are. Change our mind about our sin. Make it personal, not just sin in general, but our sin. And change your mind about who Jesus is, that he is the one that I now need to run to. This, this happens in the mind, in the heart. It is not just an acknowledgement of a creed. Now, I love creeds. I grew up saying the Nicene or the Apostles' Creed every Sunday. It's a powerful statement of faith. However, believing the Apostles' Creed will not get me into heaven. Believing in Jesus will get me to heaven. And we're going to need to unwrap what that means. 
Because at this point, my understanding of what's being said in this salvation message here is I just need to believe in what Je- who Jesus is and what he has done. And I'm telling you, the demons believe that church, but they have not repented. They may have a clear understanding of who Jesus is, but they could care less that they are sinful and they are certainly not going to turn from their sin or make a decision to turn from their sin to follow after Jesus. They won't do that. So it has to be more than just believing a creed about Jesus. Okay? Comment. Do you, question. Do you, do you, my question is, do you believe one can um, believe that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord and then from there change their mind or metanoia about themselves? Uh, I'm sorry, just, just say that one more time. So if one comes to understand Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, then the metanoia, the change of mind about themselves comes to play of saying, man, Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. Because of what he did, and uh, what he accomplished on the cross and appeased God's wrath. Man, that makes me change my mind about who I am as a sinner. So do you, that's what I'm saying. Like, do you believe that one can believe Jesus Christ, uh, come to understand Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and then have that change of mind about themselves? So rather, than, rather than change their mind about themselves. Mm-hmm. I had a similar what, question too. Let, let me just say that I am diagramming it like this because it flows. How do you apprehend these truths and in what order? Let, let me just say this, and, and, and that is to kind of uphold what he may be getting in this. When we understand who Jesus is as the spotless Lamb of God, what he accomplished, that he died on the cross for my sins, we should come to this other change of mind that includes these. I am a sinner. I must turn from my sin. So, uh, yes, when, when someone understands the cross properly, then they should change their mind about their sin. They should change their mind about their lifestyle and truly want to hate it and not live it anymore. And this humbling themselves before Christ saying, God, I can't do this and I need you to rescue me. See, that idea, we, we use the term saved. I'm not opposed to that term saved. It's just it's overworked in our generation. So I personally, you probably know this, I, I like the term rescue only because for me that is not an overworked term, you uh, English word in our, in our culture. And it does depict what salvation and deliverance is, but for us it's, it's, it's just got a little bit more bite to it because it's not overworked. Are you saved? Well, every, yeah, what they, what people, yeah, do I believe in Jesus? Yeah, I believe in Jesus. I believe he's the son of God. Well, that's not real. Has, has Jesus rescued you from your sin? Whoa, that's something totally different. No, it's not. Are you saved and have you been rescued are the same thing? So you understand what I mean. It's just that, am I saved? That, that word saved, awesome word. The Greek word is sozo, so it even sounds like saved. But it's just overworked. And so I do like the word rescue. But that's, that's what we're getting at here. That's the heart of the gospel. That's what Jesus came to do, to rescue me from my sins. Or as Matt, in Matthew it says, you'll call his name Jesus, for he shall save or rescue his people from their sins. Okay? So All right. One final, just, okay. So on this side, because I'm a picture guy too, systematically I'm just not really getting this, but on this end, mm-hmm. the gospel's preached on this end. Because it's almost like he's 
he, he realizes it's a sinner, but how does he realize it's a sinner? So I'm, I'm guessing that on this end, you just didn't touch on it even after, I guess. But on this end, the gospel being preached, that's how he comes to the knowledge. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, okay. without the gospel, okay. there is no there is no repentance. It sounds like the gospel being preached here. No, 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 okay. no. No, no. If, if, that's, if you understood me to say that, absolutely no, no, no. Okay, the gospel, if we're going to see this as a continuum, because it kind of feels, seems that way, that there's step one, step two, step three, um, and, and, and I'm only drawing it this way because I want us to view repentance as, an, as a 180, okay? And so that's why I'm picturing it this way. You may apprehend these truths all at once. It's, it has to come through the gospel, but we cannot just apprehend a portion of the gospel, who Jesus is and what he did. There must be something change in us about our view of who we are, a sinner, and a view about our sin. And this then means if, if I recognize I'm a sinner and I recognize, you know what, I do not want this in my life anymore and I want Jesus, I'm not even saying that that happens, we have to first not want to sin and then want Jesus, by wanting Jesus, you're not going to want your sin anymore. That's, that's the way it should be. Okay. Um, let, let me catch up with myself here. Um, nuts. Write this down, Luke 18, 13 to 14. This is the parable of the Pharisee and the Republican. I'm sorry, the publican. (laughs) (laughs) And so... Luke 18, 13, and 14. We have the tax collector, or the, the publican, and... He recognizes that he is a sinner. But the, the Pharisee says, thank you, God, that I am not like all, all other men, especially this publican. I am not a sinner like that. Thank you, God, that I am so righteous. The Republican just beats his chest and says, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And then Jesus says that man went home justified. Not justified in his own mind. See, the the Pharisee went home justified in his own mind. The the publican went home justified in God's mind. Uh, That he himself was justified. Okay? What we recognize here is that he is a sinner caught in sin and he cries out to God for mercy upon his sin and his sinful lifestyle. That is the heart of repentance that leads to justification. Okay? Kind of caught in that nutshell of God have mercy upon me, a sinner. Okay? Let's talk about faith. Uh, So much to talk about faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. By grace through faith. Okay, by grace we are saved through faith. Um, I, I've talked about this, that the grace is the power that brings about the salvation. Faith is not the power. Faith is not power. I want you to write those words down. Faith is not power. 
What did I just say? Somebody repeat that for me. Faith is not power. Okay, faith is not power. Why am I emphasizing this so much? Because there is a teaching that is rampant, especially on TV, but rampant in our day that says faith is power. Faith is the, faith is the power to change things. If you want to see things change in your life, you need to have faith because faith changes things. Now, what they are making, the, the, the mistake that they're making is that they are confusing the, uh, the electrical cord that plugs into the outlet with the electricity that flows through that cord. And I can understand in some contexts making that error or in some contexts just boldly stating it that way. Okay, by faith I'm saved. I, okay, I understand. But to be, to be technical... Which, which, by the way, God, Jesus, was not always technical, okay? To really round out what he says, we need to balance it with other things that he has said, okay? Uh, scripture needs to be balanced. Otherwise, we can go off on, on, on a, uh, a tangent and even into heresy. And this tangent is what I'm talking about. It is based on one scripture passage. It is found in the Gospels of the healing of the woman with the issue of blood. And, she, and he says to her, your faith has healed you. Your faith has healed you. Now, because that is not balanced with other scriptures and it's meant to stand on its own, then, it, and, and even taken out of context, because what does Jesus say flowed from him? Power. It has gone out from power. Dunamis has gone out of me. Not might or strength, those are other Greek words, but miraculous power has just gone out of me. And for someone to think that somehow faith is the power that healed her, that is not what Jesus is trying to say. Even though he says your faith has healed you, that's like someone saying by faith you're saved. Okay, I understand what you're saying. Technically, it's God's grace. It's by God's grace through my faith that I'm saved. So faith is not the power that healed her. And Jesus makes that absolutely clear in the context. But in the word of faith teaching, faith is a power. You unleash, you, you need to just simply unleash that power within you. That power within you is not so much the Holy Spirit, that power within you is faith. You can speak things into existence by the power of what? Faith. And, and, and we move into this, we are teetering on heresy because we are, we are making faith something that grace is, and faith is not. Faith is simply saying, God, I am absolutely powerless, and I need you to change me. I need you to change my circumstances, because I can't do it. So really, faith is just the opposite. Faith is not the power. Faith is acknowledging you are powerless. Okay, so in my opinion, this, this truly is a big deal. We need, to, we need to realize that it is not all about me. It is not me who has saved me. And if we're not careful, that's where this teaching is going. Okay? Faith, God just gives us a blank check and faith fills out the check. And it's yours, whatever it is. Okay, I'm going to jump off that hobby horse right Faith, and I want you to write these down. Faith demonstrates, faith can be uh, understood 
I'm going to elaborate it. Faith can be demonstrated in surrender, humility, powerlessness, or acknowledgement of powerlessness, that it's all by God's grace and power. It can be understood to be reception. We are receiving. Faith is receiving. Faith is not giving. It's not the power that does it. It is a turning to God. And a dependency upon God. I'm sorry? Confidence. I want to be careful with confidence because there's no... Confidence in what? Confidence usually means confidence in me, and I want to be careful because that's not certainly not what you, you would mean. Confidence in God. Okay. All right. Why do, I, why do I strain this? And I say strain because in our mind, faith, we, 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 it's so easily understood to mean uh, apprehending facts and doctrine and teaching who Jesus is and what he has done for us on the cross. And I'm saying it is more than that. It is a yielding and a surrendering to. And therefore, it must include acknowledging Jesus as Lord, not just Savior. So why do I say this? And I want us to turn to Luke chapter 14. In this is the con, in this context is counting the cost of being a disciple. Luke 14. And it says in verse 25, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, just out of the blue, he turns around and says to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, (laughs) whoa, Jesus, put the brakes on here, buddy. You're you're really stirred up right now. What's going on? If anyone would come after me and to come to me means to believe in. You can remember when we were looking at John 6, anyone who no man can come to me unless the father draws him. We cannot believe apart from God's grace. Okay. So this idea of coming to Jesus, that is believing. In other words, he says, um, you cannot believe in me and And I'm going to word this differently. Love your mother and father less than me. That's really what he is saying here. If you go back into the Old Testament, the Bible says that uh, Jacob loved Rachel but hated Leah. And it's very clear. He didn't hate Leah, but clearly he loved Leah less. Okay? She was second. Rachel was first. Rachel was the love of Jacob's life. And Jesus is saying, if I'm not the love of your life, you cannot be my disciple. 
Do, do you hear what I'm saying? If I am not the love of your... How does that fly in the face of just changing your mind about who Jesus is? You see, faith is a response to who Jesus is. It's not just a change of mind. Now believing in Jesus, it's more than just believing the stuff and the things and who of Jesus. It is he, when it says, when this said that he is the object of our faith, I say amen to that. But what do you mean? It means this. He is the object of now my affection. He is my Lord. He is the one I submit to. I love him above all else. This is not an action. It, I, I hope it demonstrates itself in action. But I, I, I am at this point, faith is a decision. It is a surrender. It is a choice. It's a choice that Jesus gave to the rich young ruler. Sell everything and then follow me. Why? That's an action. But if in his heart, He truly loved Jesus more than his money. That would be salvation. And Jesus was saying, prove your faith because your money is a stumbling block. And the man couldn't do it. Why? Because there was no faith. Love for money had a hold, a grip on his heart and had not let go. So of course he could not sell his possessions. All right. If anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me, excuse me, and anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So now we're talking not just about others loving them less, but now ourselves. That's what the cross is here implying. Are are you willing to die for me? And then he says something rather outlandish in verse 33, so bold to say to them, in the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Mm-hmm. That has to start with a decision, a choice. This is the concept of faith that he is talking here about here that now needs to be worked out in a lifestyle. But you make the choice before you live the lifestyle, before you actually walk it out. And in essence, he's saying you you must be willing to give up everything. Then you can follow me. And and that needs to follow. You need to truly give up everything. You need to turn your back on those things. But that happens after conversion. So if you want to be my disciple... Leave it all behind and come follow. This is what he, he, he talked. He, this is the challenge that he gave to the disciples when he said um, to Peter and Andrew and John and James, uh, where he <clears throat> he says, um, "Come, follow me." And they dropped their nets, they dropped their father's business, and they followed Jesus. Okay. They made the choice. We're going to follow Jesus. That wasn't, by the way, the first time they met Jesus. But in, in some of the Gospels, that is the first encounter. But John tells us that where there was a prior encounter. I'm not going to get into that. But they made that choice. I'm giving up everything, and I'm going to follow Jesus. This is surrender. This is lordship salvation. We must realize that if, 
if we want to hold on to our sin, and that, that's our plan, we're going to hold on to our sin, we cannot follow Jesus. Now, I am not saying that we have to stop sinning. That's not what I'm saying. That stop sinning part follows salvation by the empowerment of the Spirit. We're going to get into that another week when you get into sanctification. All right, I need to wrap it up here. Can I just say this? Um, Because as one preaches on this, we can come to a point, if we're not careful, and equate what I'm saying with mature faith. So let me just say this. Faith grows. Okay? Faith grows. Does not mean that because you are making a decision to turn your back on your sin, that you're not going to sin anymore. Because faith grows. Your devotion to Christ deepens. Your surrender deepens. He exercises lordship over very specific areas and sets you free as you are (laughs) sanctified. So I don't want us to think, wow, um, I don't have regular quiet times, so I guess I've not given up everything to follow him, so I must not be a Christian. Do you see what's wrong with what I just said? Okay. Um, Commitment is another word that can help explain or elaborate upon, if you will, this idea of faith. But let's understand, faith grows. We must first understand the gospel of who Jesus is and what he has done, and then we must respond to the gospel. And that's what repentance and faith is. So let me conclude with saying this. If you truly repent, you believe in Jesus. And if you truly believe in Jesus, you have repented. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. When I am repenting, I'm acknowledging my sin. I am choosing to live a a turn away from my sin, but I'm also choosing to follow Jesus. And that captures the idea of faith. So repentance implies faith. But to truly surrender to Jesus as Lord, what does that say about my sin? If I'm going to follow Jesus, guess what I'm not going to follow? I am not going to follow my old lifestyle because my old man has been crucified. Now we're going to get into crucifying the old man and crucifying the flesh uh, in a couple of weeks, not tonight. Um, love that Petra song, Killing My Old Man. Yeah, it blew me out of the water when I first heard that one. Heresy, what? Yeah, then you got to understand who, 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 who his old man is. What if you're already an old man? Crucify that young man in you. So repentance implies faith, and faith implies repentance. So therefore, either of those words truly can stand on their own if we want to put a formula together for the gospel. 
the gospel is preached, I repent and I am saved. Because repentance implies a turning to Jesus, an embracing of Jesus, a, a humbling before Jesus, a crying out to Jesus, rescue me. We can also say the gospel is preached to us, we believe and are saved. Because believing implies if I'm going to embrace Jesus, I need to let go with what's already filling my life, filling my arms, if you will. I've got to be willing to let that go and embrace Jesus. So belief can stand on its own, but it would certainly imply repentance. Now, do you understand? This, what I just shared is absolutely crucial. So when people say, okay, well, if it's faith alone, why does it tell me to repent? And if it's, you know, if, if, uh, we, we, if your understanding of repentance is what it is, then why does it just simply, uh, why does it say repent? Why, does, why do we just find repent sometimes and just find belief sometimes? And people can be confused. But you have an answer for them. Because repentance implies faith. And faith implies repentance. You can't have repentance and not faith. And you cannot have faith without repentance. So Jesus made it very clear. The first words out of his mouth. He said, repent and believe the gospel of the kingdom. Okay? So let, let me close in prayer. I could. Father, we acknowledge that you truly, truly are Lord. And that you have the answer for every sin ill in our life. You have the remedy because you are the remedy. You are that power that sets us free. You indeed have called us. You have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. We declare your praises. This is what we live for, to live a life that praises and honors you in every way. Because you are Lord. Jesus, thank you. You have rescued us from our sin. We were so, so lost. We hated you. Whether we acknowledged it or not, God, we hated you by our very lifestyle. We were in rebellion against you. And I just want to thank you that you chose to cast your love upon me a lost, rebellious sinner. And you chose to break the chains that held me fast. You chose to breathe new life in me. You chose me to conform to your image, Jesus. To become like you. And God, today I say I need help. Help me. Be more like you. But thank you that you rescued me from that pet, that lifestyle, that bondage. And for, for every day, God, I just pray for every single one of us. Empower us to live that life that you have called us and predestined us to and enjoying all of that inheritance that we have in Christ. And we give you the praise in Jesus' name.